You're listening to Run With The Bulls, a podcast discussing a unique approach to everyday finance with everyday people. Run With The Bulls is sponsored by Mentoro, a financial wellness company. Now, your hosts, author Danny Kofke and the royalty of financial wellness, Whitney Queen. Welcome to Run With The Bulls. My name is Danny Kofke and I'm a motivational mentor with Mentoro. I am joined by the president of Mentoro, Whitney Queen. Hey, Whit. Hey, Danny, and hello to everyone listening. So as Danny mentioned, we are with Mentoro, and you might be asking yourself, what is that? Mentoro is a financial wellness company that focuses on providing financial literacy to individuals. So our name is as unique as our solution. It's a play on words, obviously, for Mentor because we are financial mentors, and Toro because we take a bullish approach to financial education. Also joining us today is Kelly Curick, Mentoro's Vice President of Plan Management. Hey, Kelly. Hi, everyone. And Casey Stegman, our Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning. Hey, guys. Hey, Casey. In this episode, we're going to talk about financial wellness. And I think a great way to kick it off would be, Danny, why don't you tell us what that means to you? You know, a lot of people define it as something different. For some, it's probably going to the beach every year on that summer vacation. For others, it may be living in that gated community maybe driving the fancy car. But to me, financial wellness, it means being able to do what you were called on earth to do, no matter the income potential or cost of it. When I started off my career, I was a school teacher. Now, obviously, most people know teachers don't make a lot of money, especially at the beginning, but I felt a passion. I felt called to do that. And then in addition, when we had children, we felt called for my wife, Tracy, to be able to stay at home. Obviously, that pays nothing, but we were able to do that. So to me, that kind of what what financial wellness is, is to be able to do what you feel you were called to. And it changes every season of life, right? There's different times we're going to do different things, but being able to, to pursue our passions and do what we feel called to do. Yeah, so that's a great point, Danny. I think the definition of financial wellness can be very subjective. I know when I first joined the financial services industry, there was obviously a huge emphasis on money. But what I learned very quickly is that having a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that you're rich. So to me, financial wellness is really more of a matter of health, not wealth. So it's more how you feel about your money, what you think, how your money controls you and and maybe you not letting it control you versus what's actually in your wallet. Helping people define financial wellness is a big part of what we do at Mentoro. Absolutely. And I think to help our listeners understand more, we should hear from some other folks. So Casey, what do you think? For me, it's, it's all rooted in basic human psychology. I think financial wellness is having peace of mind, being in control of your finances, not the other way around, having a plan in place. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, financial wellness isn't something that's going to be achieved or attained overnight. It's going to be a process. But I think that, uh, that the, the peace of mind that comes with having that plan, uh, knowing that, hey, I may not be ready to retire tomorrow, but I have a plan for which I can, you know, hopefully retire within five to 10 years. And that makes you feel good. I, I think, it, again, all, all rooted in human psychology. Definitely. And it doesn't always mean having a lot of money in the bank. Um, And and I know, Casey, you're kind of like me. Uh, I I did work in the financial services industry for a while and, you know, not going to get into how much I made, but I made more than I was obviously as a school teacher. But I felt a calling like it just for me, even though I was making a large salary per se, 
I, I just didn't feel like day to day I was pursuing, I, I was living up to the potential that I have. So I left the financial industries and I know you kind of have a similar story and I actually got back into the classroom, even though the pay wasn't as much, I felt wealthier. Yeah. Yeah. A very similar story for me. I, prior to joining Mentora, I spent the better part of a decade working for a broker-dealer placement agency, and essentially what we would do is help companies, existing public companies, raise capital. And a lot of times uh, it would require, you know, uh, long trips to New York and San Francisco and, and Boston and from Dallas. That's a long way away. So it's a lot of time away from home, a lot of time in cabs and cramped Manhattan boardrooms and, you know, LaGuardia Airport. If I never see it again in my life, I'd be I'd be thrilled to death. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was a it was a a really great job. And to your point, I, I think financially rewarding. But when the opportunity to join Mentoro presented itself and I was able to join and, and kind of get a, uh, a sense of what we're doing here, it, it, it is much more gratifying. It, we're helping people as opposed to strictly transactional business. We're bettering people's lives and it's, uh, it's much more gratifying. And so, yeah, it trumps whatever large uh, salary figure or amount of money that you would want to make in a year, There's there are other things that are more important, in my opinion. Sure. So as you can see, there are really a lot of different parts to financial wellness. And what your definition is may be fine for you, right? It's all personal. For some, it's maybe staying home with your kids. For others, it is having that big dream house that you always dreamed of. That's fine. But see, at Mentoro, we're here to help you on what your financial wellness journey is going to be. And right now, we're going to take a short break. And then when we get back, we're going to discuss how we address all of these aspects of financial wellness. We just talked about what financial wellness is, but how do you get there? What does a successful financial wellness program look like? And Casey, I know you have a lot of experience talking with companies about what a financial wellness program looks like for them. So give us the spiel. We at Mentoro believe that there are four critical components to having a successful financial wellness program or having success, just generally speaking. And those four things are human interaction, customization, and engaging technology, and being unbiased. And we can talk a little bit more about those or delve into them a little bit deeper, but ultimately we feel like the absence of any of those four components and you're going to have a hard time succeeding uh, in your financial wellness journey. I definitely say let's dig in and discuss these. So you brought up human interaction, and I know that's a term that probably makes everyone a little squeamish in this day and age, but it's such a critical part. So what does that look like at Mentoro? Yeah, you're right. It is uh, a, a little bit frowned upon in these uh, socially distant times we're living in. But, you know, we talked earlier about human psychology, and I think the human interaction component, again, boils down to uh, basic human psychology, and, and that is Generally speaking, self-help doesn't work. People need to have, uh, you know, to be held accountable, to have somebody pushing them, somebody motivating them, somebody to bounce ideas off of. And I think in the absence of having that accountability partner, people really struggle to navigate through an entire program on their own. It just doesn't work. And, and there's a reason why, you know, there are organizations out there like AA and, you know, GA and all the different, I guess, addiction recovery groups. And that's because 
it's tough to do it on your own. And you can go look at any statistics in any industry or apply it to any aspect of life, and you're going to find out that, you know, if you have somebody interacting with you, pushing you, and you have that accountability, you're just going to have a much greater chance. And I think kind of this year it shows with schools. So I look at how much money schools can save if we had no buses, if you didn't have to pay for any buildings, and teachers could all teach from home. But I would venture to say maybe 1% have done well with the virtual learning, right? In order to help have that change, we do. Like, you need that teacher. And we know, obviously, schools work best when you got a room full of students and you have a teacher up in front. And I, I kind of think the same thing holds true a lot of times with financial wellness. You kind of need that coach. You need that help. And that human interaction, I think, is a big, big component. Yeah, right? and I think that's, that's the reason why, again, we talk to HR directors and CFOs of companies large and small, public, private, you name it, it doesn't really matter uh, what, the, what the dynamics of the organization is, but participation rates are low, super low, 5 6%, and sometimes that's on the high side. And executives and company leadership are looking for ways to get that participation up. Well, if you look at the common denominator in each and every one of those programs, it's there's no accountability partner. There's no human interaction involved in their financial wellness program. So true. I mean, I think back to growing up in Alabama, you don't talk about money. You just don't. That's something that you sweep under the rug and you go about life. And so I think of all these people who are not talking about money. They're not opening up to someone to ask for advice or to figure out how things work. They're just trying to look around them, mimic or God forbid, you know, go down a rabbit hole on Google. So we know that really only about 6% of people who do it themselves really are, are going to take that next step and get somewhere successfully with it. So Yeah, I think ha- in Alabama, all you talk about is national championships. That's As a Georgia very- fan, I'm a little jealous, I have to admit, <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess. That's very true. But, you know, I, I think, too, in, in disarming people to have someone to talk to, it's that unbiased piece has to be there. So, Casey, you touched on ulterior motives, and I know so many people are claiming to want to help, but really maybe there's a hidden agenda there to bring over a new client or to get them signed up for a program. What's what's Mentoro's stake yeah. on that? Yeah, I, I think it's very important for participants to understand that the person that's been provided by their company to a- answer questions, help guide them, doesn't have ulterior motives. They're not trying to pitch products. They're not trying to pitch investment uh, management services or anything like that. They're number one job and sole focus is on helping that individual get on the path to financial wellness. And so um, it's critical. And, and there are, again, a lot of, not to disparage the competition, there are a lot of really great financial wellness programs out there. But by and large, you're seeing them tied to some kind of investment services portfolio, whether it's you know a mutual fund, whether it's a record keeper that is you know ultimately trying to get you to you know invest in their family of funds, whatever. And it's important that Participants, you mentioned it earlier, Whitney, for them to open up and really be comfortable talking about their finances and discussing their problems and being a little bit vulnerable, I think it's critically important for them to understand that the person that's across from them is there to help them, and that's it. No, I agree, and I'll go back to my time in the financial services industry. I would meet with people, and they would have fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of credit card debt, but I knew for my company to make money, I'd have to get them to invest. I couldn't do it. So it didn't make me a really good employee of that company, but I knew, you know, if you're paying 18 to 24% a year 
on credit card debt, you don't need to invest. I don't know of any investment besides something that Bernie Madoff could come up with, right? And we all know what happened to him. So nothing guarantees that. So to me, that's what I kind of love about of a financial wellness program. We're not tied to some financial product where we have to sell it. It's just educating and helping people exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. You said something there, Danny, that, that triggered a thought. And I oftentimes, when I'm talking to people about financial wellness and about our program, I kind of compare it to a diet maybe a a fad diet out there. And so some people need to be on the beans and rice. They've got to cut everything out and really modify it just for them. Whereas some people really need more of a lifestyle change, balance and moderation. So that's another point that you made, Casey, on customization. How does that look? We know that no one company is alike and no one person is experiencing the same thing on their journey. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I I think it goes again into why we're seeing such low participation rates in in a lot of cases. And I think it's because there are a lot of really good programs out there. Uh, We have a lot of respect for Dave Ramsey and his Smart Dollar program. It's brought a lot of attention and awareness to to our industry, and, you know, he has a great program. The one issue that we see with it is it's very narrowly focused. It's a lot about interest rates and credit card and and getting out of debt and and all of that. And that's great, but that may – only pertain to five or ten or fifteen percent of an organization, and you know maybe irrelevant to the other seventy or eighty or what percentage. So, it's critically important to understand what specific issues a an organization and their employee population are dealing with, so that we can customize the program and really hit those needs to make sure that the content that we're delivering is is relevant and you know is really uh, pertinent to to their everyday life. So. To your point, Whitney, to reiterate, but we see everything from student loan issues to, you know, people who just don't have a dime saved for retirement, people who don't have any kind of emergency funds where they're sweating any kind of major event that happens that it would be devastating to them. And that's, you know, those are the types of things that we have to identify and figure out. And then back to that accountability partner and, and that human interaction piece, then we put a plan in place and that's where the educator or the mentor can really help identify, hey, listen, these are some of the issues that we need to start with before we get to retirement and 401ks and, and all of that. We got to solve the emergency fund, step one, kind of crawl, walk, run. And I kind of like the way Whitney talked about it earlier about like with a diet. You know, a lot of times if you go on a diet and starve yourself, if you don't lose much weight, you're going to go out and buy a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, right? It's like, uh. And I think a lot of times it does work with some other programs. If you just eat rice and beans for five years, absolutely it'll work. But a lot of people aren't able to do that. Like for me, I'm pretty disciplined. I could eat the same thing over and over again, but Tracy, my wife, is not. So I know that wouldn't be effective for her. So I think that's the beauty of our program. It's just you kind of make personal finance personal, right, and help them. If you're someone that can just cut out everything, go for it. But a lot of people, they like to be rewarded a little bit along the way. Um, And I think, you know, going back to diets, I think that's why Weight Watchers is such a good program for a lot of people. You're allowed a little cheat day. You can reward yourself and eat, but then, you know, you just may have to cut back. Hey, if I eat this, I'm gonna have to cut back a little later on. And I think that's kind of a good financial wellness program as well. Hey, maybe if I go out and buy a $5 latte, that's okay, but I'm not going to be able to go out to dinner tonight or something like that. But I think it just takes a look at the whole person and it's not just a one size fits all. And it's about developing habits. It's about healthy habits. And it's not an overnight fix. It's getting on the on the path to financial wellness is a process. It's developing better habits. It's 
you know, to your point, Danny, not completely depriving yourself and changing everything on the fly, but trying to get better in, in certain areas, but also allowing yourself a little grace from time to time. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And so as you guys are talking, I'm thinking, how do we get all these insights? How do we connect with the people to be able to get this information from them? And obviously, because it's 2021, we leverage technology. And, you know, not to take away at all from the human interaction component, because that is so critical. But I tend to think of the technology that we've built and we've created as more of a digital arm. It's just an extension of who our people are so that we can have that round the clock opportunity to continue to connect with people and put them on that path. So we've talked a lot about a plan and how they build out that plan, leveraging technology to build out that plan, have those notifications and reminders to help build those positive habits, to check things off the list when you know you've done them is huge in this day and age. Uh, I know we all live and breathe by our phones. And so to know that something's going to remind you to pay that bill or to put that money in savings or to have that conversation with your spouse about money is always a nice thing. One thing with the technology and being able to gather those insights is the reports that we can pull from it. So Casey, you've touched on some participation rates, but there are so many great insights that we can get from the data that we're pulling in our technology. And Kelly here, you know, you pretty much live in the reports day to day. So (laughs) tell us a little bit about what what a day in the life is like for you and some of these insights that you're gathering. Sure. So there's really no um, typical day But the reports are just so crucial. We were talking earlier about how each company is customized and different, and that really shows in the reports. So the reports are really a reflection of the engagement numbers, um, the work that our education team is doing. It's a reflection on the program timeline and the data that we're pulling from the employees in some of the areas that they would like a little bit more help in because we're completely customized. These reports are just crucial for not only the participants but also for the HR team. It's a way for us to provide benchmarking um, statistics and we can come back in from quarter to quarter or as often as they need them pulled and we can really show them the work that we're doing with their employees. Mm-hmm. No, I love that, Kelly, because, you know, I'll go back to my days as a teacher. If I taught something and then 90% of my class failed a test, that's on me, right? As a teacher, I didn't teach it well enough. So I think it's so important with the collection that you get, it's like, okay, these are the results. So then if we see, for instance, a plan, maybe they're not doing as well, we have to do something different to reach them better. So I think it's a crucial part. And I think that companies really wanna know, you know, are they moving the needle with this program? And, and they want to see evidence of that. And a lot of these folks are data-driven. A lot of our clients are CFOs who want to see, hey, where are we making progress and where are we not making progress and where do we need to kind of double our efforts or refocus? Uh, I know, Kelly, that you pull reports all the time, but one of the key components is identifying, surveying the employee population, see what kind of things they're struggling with. Then once we have that data, again, create the curriculum and customize the curriculum accordingly. And then at the end of the year, to tie it in with the reporting, companies want to see, all right, so we wanted to focus on loans from our 401k have been a huge issue for our company. Or, you know, we have a whole lot of a high preponderance of student loan debt, or most of our employees don't even have an emergency fund. Whatever these issues that are identified are, the reporting feature and, you know, the technology drives that piece and really allows us to show, hey, again, here's where we're moving the needle. Here's where we're making a difference. 
Absolutely. And we also track the different actions that people take in the meeting. So it's all anonymous data, but we have a way to report back to the HR saying these are the different actions the employees are taking, and that could be crucial feedback for them. One of the things that I really like to look at with the data in these reports is it's kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit. So it's one thing to look and see that maybe people are struggling with debt or they're struggling with student loans, but oftentimes there's a root cause to that. So that really gets me excited about behavioral finance. And Danny, I know you've had a lot of experience about that. You've written you know, a lot about that in some of your books. So can you give us an idea of how behavioral finance plays a role in all of this? Behavioral finance, I think, drives almost all of our personal financial decisions. It's pretty easy on paper to have money, spend less than you earn. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get easier than that, right? But for many of us, it just doesn't work. And why is that? It's something to do with behavior. Whether buying something gives us a feeling of satisfaction. And I think for a lot of people, they're lacking something in life, right? Whether they're unhappy, and 70% of workers are unhappy at their job. So what? You go out, you buy something to mask that unhappiness. So that's the behavior of finance. Maybe your parents, maybe you had parents that were so tight with money and you were always told, you can't buy that, you can't buy that. So then when you get to be an adult, you know what? I'm buying it. So there's a lot of things where a lot of people, they make decisions and they don't even realize why they are making those financial decisions. It's deep-rooted. So I think behavioral finance, it plays a key role to kind of really get inside, okay, why are we doing that? We know it's not good to use a credit card and not pay it off. You're getting charged 18, 24% interest, right? It's pretty easy to figure out. That's not a good thing. Yet a lot of people still do it and continue to do it. So that's where behavior finance plays such a big role of why are we continuing to do this thing, the same things over and over and over again, even though ultimately we know it's harming us. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And to kind of bring this back around to those kind of four differentiators, I know we've spent a lot of time factoring in behavioral finance into our solution. And again, each component is intended to drive some of these pieces of the program. So we know that people are uneasy about money. You know, I I talked about my friends in Alabama before you made a crack on our football. So that was a compliment. Yeah, I'm jealous. (laughs) I'm very, very jealous. (laughs) But as we think about that, Inertia plays a huge part in this. People are afraid. What, what does it mean if I actually admit the fact that I am in debt? What does it mean if I actually have to take these steps? It's kind of scary. It'd be easier just to keep swiping the card and, and turn around and pretend like that never happened. So I think with that human interaction component, we're really helping to engage people and pull them out of their shells let them know that this is a safe environment to take that step. And then through the assessment that we're taking, we're able to really help people get some personal benchmarks. And myopia is a huge thing, throw out a big term there, but really that means that you have a present bias. So I may not be thinking into the future too much about how I feel about my finances. Should I save for retirement? Should I be preparing? I'm thinking about what am I going to do later today? So by taking that assessment, getting that information, I avoid that present bias that I might be fighting against. So there's a lot of ways that this insight plays a deeper role in what we do. And it's really all to kind of change that behavior. I like that you used a big word. I didn't know they taught those in Alabama. Funny. (laughs) We do know big words in Alabama. Myopia, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our motto here at Mentoro is that we engage examine, educate, and empower. And we can do all that because we've assembled this great team with all these different skills. 
Absolutely. So when we get back, why what we do matters. So you ever notice how every year when it gets to be January 1st, a financial resolution is still popular every, every single year. And why is that? Well, as of right now, 60% of Americans feel weighed down by debt. Nearly half would have trouble finding $400 to pay for an emergency. And 78% of workers live paycheck to paycheck. Yikes. Those are some scary stats, Danny. Yes. And I think a big reason why so many Americans struggle is that we don't teach about money in school. I remember teaching things such as locating every country in Latin America and the predicate of a sentence. When's the last time you've been asked that, Whitney? It's, uh, it's definitely been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So financial wellness was a topic that was never mentioned in the standards I had to cover. You're so right. I didn't learn anything about money when I was in school. And having to figure all this out as an adult can really set us back. And we just talked about budgeting so far. Of course, that's really just the most basic part of financial wellness. Here are some more scary stats. Only 43% of us are adequately insured. Almost 70% don't have a will. I wonder how many people can even define what adequately insured even means. That can really get complicated. And Danny, do you feel that knowledge plays a role in being financially well? You read my mind, Whitney. I mean, a little biased, of course. But yes, having the knowledge and confidence to make informed financial decisions is a key ingredient of financial wellness. And I mentioned before that my wife, Tracy, stayed at home for eight years. And up to that point, I had never taken a finance class in my life. So I basically had to self-teach myself. Hey, if we're going to make it on $42,000 a year, we're going to have to figure this thing out, right? And and that's kind of why I love my role now with Mentoro. I get to help people do that as well. Mm -hmm. I would just add, you know, you talked a little bit about being adequately insured. I would say that it it cuts both ways. I mean, there's something to be said for being overinsured as well and having somebody to explain that to you. Whitney, to your point, does does somebody know if they have enough or too much insurance coverage? I mean, that can be a financial drain in and of itself. So it, it really does cut both ways. And I'll say a lot of companies will prey on that, too. I remember you can buy this type of insurance, the catastrophic insurance. You can buy the critical care, all these types of things. So you can be overinsured as well. Good point. And, and, you know, we all have financial services backgrounds here. And I think one one of the great failures of our industry has been lack of access to financial guidance and financial assistance for those who actually need it the most. You know, in today's world, those who have assets, investable assets, tend to get the best help. They're the ones going to the wealth managers who are helping them allocate their uh, investments and break down their insurance and all of that. And then, you know, if you don't have a certain amount in assets, then you're kind of on your own in this day and age. And so that's why we feel so compelled to take this mission on and, and try to try to do our part. So, again, we talk a little bit about we believe that, that the workplace is the last great hope for educating employees. We think it's incumbent upon companies to really step up and provide the resources for their employees because, again, most of them don't have alternatives. Financial wellness obviously has clear benefits for employees, but Kelly, are there also benefits for employers? 
There absolutely are. So the annual cost of financial stress to the employer due to lost productivity and absenteeism of the employee is $2,169. That is a lot of money per employee. Also, 50% report that they would be more productive without their current financial worries. That's a lot of employees that are distracted at work, about 43% of them exactly, that are working on their finances at work instead of being productive in the workplace. By empowering employees to focus on their financial wellness journey, you can create a happier and more productive workplace. This is a win-win situation for all involved. I totally agree, Danny. Casey and Kelly, thank you so much for defining financial wellness and joining us here today and, and helping us introduce Mentoro. And thank you for listening. That's all the time we have for today. Catch us next time as we run with the bulls. Run with the Bulls is sponsored by Mentoro and hosted by Danny Kofke and Whitney Queen. Learn more by visiting mentorogroup.com.